Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Opportunity Cost. My name is Jill, and I met with Julie Jo, a former distributor with Arbonne and popular anti-MLM creator and advocate. She sat down with me one afternoon to talk about her time there. Can you describe what was going on in your life around the time that you were approached about Arbonne? Yeah. So it was specifically, I think I was asked about it like the end of February of 2019 or the beginning of March. Um, I had gotten married January 1st of 2019. So I was a newlywed. Um, I was in school doing my master's. My husband was doing his, finishing his last year of his bachelor's. So uh, it was pretty overwhelming. We were very broke. I think we were sharing on a three bedroom apartment with two other people. Um, we lived in a small town. I was working and doing, you know, my master's and he was working and doing his bachelor's. So we, we were busy. We were newlyweds. We did not have much money. And, um, at that time I had gone to a certain camp for several years in a row, like three summers. Um, I worked on the, like the leadership aspect at that camp as like a counselor a couple of times, then like more on the leadership the third summer. And I was approached by someone I had looked up to for a while who was working there. It was a Christian camp. Uh, I went to a Christian school and my master's is in theology and ministry. So I was all about religion and um, everything that came along with it. And this person, like I said, looked up to them. Their boyfriend was one of my best friends um, a few years earlier. Like I was really close with this person. And so I really respected her, even though I didn't know her very well. And she approached me about it. um, Probably, like I said, around that February or March uh, after I had liked some of her social media posts. So I noticed it when I had like interacted with her. Yeah. And how, how did she kind of start interacting with you and bringing up the, the business opportunity? Um, did she talk to you on social media or was it in more in person? Like how did that go down? It was definitely mostly over social media. It started on Instagram as I was interacting with her, Um, I'm not really sure if there was any like relationship building since we already knew each other. Like, I don't know if she tried to talk to me first about other things. Um, I think I had liked one of her Instagram stories though about Arbonne. Like it was just her drinking a greens or something. And that's from what I remember, that's when she reached out. Um, and something else, uh, was it really wasn't her that helped me get started. It was more of her mom who, was uh, above her and who was um, in the top 2% of the company, as well as um, the national vice president of that upline. So she kind of like pulled me in and then the other two really were the ones to get me started. They were the the closers. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The closers. Yeah. Yeah. So how, explain to me kind of how you got started. Did you buy the products first and try them? Or um, did you kind of sign up and knew that you wanted to be a distributor for them? So I knew that we needed to make more money. That was something that 
um, I was interested in because, you know, like I said, we weren't really making much at all. And, um, I also wanted to lose some weight. I wanted to be healthier and the idea of what they told me, what it was, was really what stuck out to me. You know, the idea that I could use these products that were, you know, apparently really great, lose weight, feel better, but also make an income by just sharing them is what they said, uh, seemed really great to me. Yeah, probably seemed like easy, like killing two birds with one stone or three birds with one stone for you. Exactly. And I knew so many people, um, which is something, you know, they mentioned like saying, they pretty much said like, the more people you get to know, you know, the, the more you can sell and stuff. And I was like, I knew, I knew a bunch of people. I, I, um, was in college. Uh, I was in a sorority. I, you know, I was doing all these things around a lot of people. So of course, you know, I, I should be able to do it was my thought. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it seems like really good on face value. So when you got started, did you, I know they Arbonne specifically has a lot of claims about their like ingredients list and how they're like super good for you. Um, and did they ever, did they ever encourage you to buy products for your own use? I think I know the answer to this, but, um, how, what was your kind of like mind frame going into that and being like, I'm going to replace everything with these products or how did you kind of think of that as you're going into it? Yeah, I, they, their line was, um, be a product of the products. So pretty much they talked about me shifting all of my products to Arbonne from toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner, um, health and wellness protein. Uh, they even had like hand soap, lotion. Uh, I mean, you name it, they probably had it. Um, and uh, except like cleaning supplies, they didn't really carry, but I feel like other than that, I switched over to Arbonne and it's, just to you know, be upfront, very, very expensive compared to like a basic Jergens hand lotion for like eight bucks. Arbonne's is like $20 from what I remember. So as someone who was struggling already, um, that, that idea was a bit scary to me, but I eventually did do it. And, um, you know, the line be a product of the products and kind of pushing the idea that that's how you're going to sell more is if you show the products that you're using is if you, you know, talk about these products and how much greater they are than the products you used to have, uh, that's going to help you make more money and, um, help others, you know, be more interested in what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So talk to me a little bit about like when you got in, I know there's a lot of training and stuff that you're going to with your, uplines um when you were first going into it how did that feel to you um you know how much time were you spending how much money were you spending a month like what did it look like for you kind of week by week yeah when i started it was um just hit the ground running type of thing it was um reached out to you know, first off, make the hundred person list. But while you're doing that, that night, it was reach out to 50 people, you know, 50 people that, you know, send this to them. And through that, we would do like an opening zoom for people who wanted to hear more about it. Like an Arbonne, um, I forgot what they used to call it, but it was like an Arbonne zoom where they talked about the opportunity, talked about the products. I guess you could call it an opportunity call, but it was like the first one, the grand opening of your business. That's how they refer to it. It's like the grand opening of your business. Those were the words that they used. And 
the first night I reached out to several people that I knew on social media and people that I, and I knew them all mostly like in person too. Um, so I had quite a few people say yes. And that's actually that point where I had like 10 people or something say yes was when the national vice president stepped in. So it, it, she wasn't from the, she was from the get-go, but it was more of like several hours after I talked to the mom of the girl who invited me. And I guess they saw how many people I was able to get on a call. The national vice president stepped in to be a part of that and I guess help. Uh, I guess maybe that wasn't a normal thing. I don't know uh, at that time. So she stepped in there. Yeah, maybe not. They probably recognized that you could talk to people easily and it wasn't hard for you to get people on the phone or get people into those calls. And so for them, they're like, oh, well, she's going to make us a lot of money. Maybe we should kind of invest more time into her. Yeah, that's exactly what it seemed like at that time for sure. Yeah. Um, so describe to me a little bit, um, like how long it took you, cause I know you, um, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, but like how you kind of ended up pretty high up in, in the ranks or the compensation plan, like how long it took you to kind of get to that level, um, and what that was like for you. Yeah, that, so I, the first two months or the first three months, which they give you like two to three months to hit the first rank as like a fast start type of thing. I hit the first rank. Um, so there's only four in Arbonne and they're all decently hard to hit. I mean, it's not like you go up a couple thousand more and you hit the next rank. It's like, like at least 10,000 between 10,000 or more between each rank. Uh, and by, by 10,000, I mean, points, I mean, dollars in your business or in, you know, your business air quotes. Um, so the first one I hit, I had to get like $3,000 over three months, something like that. It could have, I think it was actually, it was like between three and $5,000 over six months or three months. I can't remember exactly. Um, and I did that. And, uh, from there, it took me a lot longer to get to the next one. Cause it was, I think an additional 10,000, um, dollars. And that, I think I went, I think I actually qualified for it for the fourth month. So I did qualify, but I didn't finish it. So you have two to three months to finish the quote unquote qualification of it. So uh, you pretty much hit that ranks amount that you need, but then the next month they want you to get a little bit more um, to like, to solidify that you are that rank. So I hit the area manager rank qualification, which is how much you're supposed to make at that level. But I didn't hit the next month where it was like a few thousand more or whatever. Uh, and then it took me, I don't know, another thing from like May to November or May to October to actually qualify again. Because someone who was in my downline at that time left. So they I pretty they pretty much helped me qualify for area and then left, which took a chunk of the money away. And that's what happens all the time. These MLMs, you know, people will um, build a team, make a lot of money, and then all of a sudden they'll have four people leave in their downline and they are screwed at that point. They don't really know what to do other than just try to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild. And I think a lot of times that's why that is one of the biggest pushes is to never stop building your team, which was one 
thing in Arbonne that they pushed really heavily. Never stop building. And I think it's for that reason. So I continued to build my team. And that October, I think it was, I qualified again with $10,000. And then um, I made it again the next month. I hit whatever qualification needed to solidify me as an area manager. So uh, that December, I was considered an area manager. Then it took me, um, I think, until that next, mm, let me think, when did COVID happen? In March, and I actually hit it in April. So I hit regional vice president um, that April of 2020. Uh, the the first qualification. So the so you need so like be a regional vice president. You need like forty thousand um, dollars a month or something. And I hit I hit like actually I hit like forty eight or whatever. So I qualified hitting that, but I did not finish that next month. Um, and so actually, when I qualified for regional vice president, is when you qualify for that level, they kind they consider you some kind of leader in the company and you kind of get invited to some of these groups and things kind of change for you. So as that started to happen is kind of when things got uh, unsettling, I think is the word I'll use for me as I kind of stepped into whatever role they consider that to be. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I would love to get into all of that. There are a couple of things I noticed actually um, one of the reasons I'm really interested in Arbon specifically is because I actually lost my best friend to Arbon. I have no idea if she's still in it or not. Um, but I noticed, and I wonder if you noticed the same thing for yourself, kind of looking back that she was kind of prone to getting on these like healthy diet kicks or like doing 75 hard or doing these like intense challenges and stuff and tying that back to her involvement in Arbonne. And I wonder if you kind of experienced some of the same things, kind of like that, like healthy living sort of kick that people in Arbonne are prone to. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, at that time, my best friend lost me to Arbonne. Uh, so I can um, relate to maybe your friend in a little bit of a different way, but um yeah, I pretty much my entire life was revolved around my health, but not in a way that it should have been. It was more of how much weight am I losing? Am I looking better? Am I staying skinny? Am I, um, you know, showing my smoothies? Am I uh, showing my greens? It, it wasn't, it wasn't really focused on health. I think they masked it as health when it really was just a disordered eating. Um, I know I experienced pretty much eating less than 1200 calories a day. I was, I was eating maybe one meal a day while I drank two smoothies and had a snack. And at that point I had lost a lot of weight and I was looking healthier because I was skinnier as, you know, society likes to point that out. Um, but I wasn't, I was, I, I felt like I didn't have nourishment. I was exhausted all the time. Um, I had a lot of nausea and I don't know particularly what it was from other than I just wasn't eating much. It could have been from the protein drinks. It could have been from my stomach. I don't know, uh, taking in all of these supplements because I was taking so many supplements every day and I just did not feel well. I looked 
you know, I, I have been going back and watching some of my trainings. Um, I've reacted to a little bit on my YouTube and whatnot, but um, I've been watching more because I was able to like get my blog into my old, old, old YouTube where I wasn't really active. I just had trainings enlisted and I was so pale. Um, I was, my hair was so thin. Uh, I just did not like, if you looked at me before I started Arbon, and then at that point, the only thing that looked different, um, in a positive way was I had lost weight, but it ended up not being positive because I just did not look healthy. I looked and felt exhausted all the time, constantly. So definitely they like to push that health kick. You get on a health kick, but I think they mask it as a healthy thing when in reality it's just a disordered uh, view of health. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that for sure. I remember she had tried to get me to do some sort of like program with her and I'm, I'm luckily I've always kind of seen those things as like, that isn't, I know that's not healthy. Like everybody needs different caloric intake. It doesn't make sense to like have these like crazy restrictive diets um, and all of that. So while I'm glad that, that you're out now and, and all of that stuff. So I want to get into, we, we kind of talked about this on our other call a little bit, but there is a predominant presence of God and religion, especially like Christian religion inside of a lot of MLMs, but a lot in Arbonne too. So I wondered if you could kind of talk about your experience there. It was everything. Uh, Christianity in Arbonne was pretty much everything. Um, if you weren't Christian, I mean, of course they'd welcome you in, um, just because you're going to make money, but ultimately like it was flooded. It, I like to, so I've used this example before, um, and some of the other stuff that I've talked about when it comes to Arbonne, but it's like Play-Doh, you know, you get like red and blue Play-Doh and you kind of mush them together. The red could be like the MLM, the blue could be your religion. And I, I use this just because it's so easy for me to understand is like, I was got the red and the blue and I pushed them together. And then I just kept kneading the dough as I kept going and it turned purple. So then it was really hard when I got out of Arbonne to separate them because they were so intertwined together that I felt like, you know, if I left, was I leaving God ultimately, like what he had for me, um, what he wanted me to do, you know, his, um, what he had planned for my life, which a lot of those things are what they nail into your head. Um, God wants you to be here. God wants you to be a servant. You're serving people by doing this. Um, you are around, you know, a bunch of, uh, Christian women who love and appreciate you. A lot of them were older than me. So I looked up to them as mentors. Um, they were there during difficult times of my life as well. Um, I obviously was super big into my religion and, uh, I, people also looked up to me, uh, you know, who, were older, but also people in my downline as well as like a, a religious leader of some kind, because that's, I did go to school for that. Uh, it was, it was very tricky when I look at it to see how they manipulated faith in a way to get you to stop thinking logically they used your emotions uh, to keep you in 
even when things didn't make sense for me, which I'm a very logical person. Uh, I, I like to think things through. I like data statistics. I like all of that stuff. So it was really odd for me to just not look at it and ignore it uh, because God wanted me to be there is what they pushed. Um, it, it, it was, I am now no longer religious, uh, probably partly because of that. Um, and I don't know if I ever will be again. And I, I've had plenty of people, you know, mention like, well, don't, you know, don't, uh, leave Christianity just because mm-hmm. of what happened. And I'm like, well, you don't understand though. The Play-Doh was purple. It was no longer blue and red for me. And it's still not, I, I can't, it, it, it was just, I, I was, <laughs> but this is a strong word, but brainwashed to an extent of what Christianity is. And I can't seem to undo it in my head. So, um, that's currently where I'm at with it, but yeah, it was everything pretty much. Yeah. I, um, I've probably been on like a similar journey, um, recently like deconstructing, my faith, because I grew up, we probably grew up in like very similar environments. I just kind of have that feeling after listening to some of your stuff. Um, but there's this idea in Christianity and especially like evangelical Christianity that the things that happen to you that you don't necessarily have control over are all things from God. I could see how it'd be very difficult to kind of go into a situation like that with that kind of thinking already embedded into your kind of understanding of of life and like your interactions with other people and it'd be very difficult to separate those those things because they feel the same even though they're not the same. Yeah, it's a very easy way for them to get you to stay without getting you to question. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about that stuff at length, but that is not what this podcast is for. So, can you describe kind of how you recruited. Um, I know you made it pretty high up, so you obviously brought people in to the business. Um, and can you describe, you know, how you went about that, how you were trained to kind of sell the opportunity to other people? Yeah. I uh, really mostly sold it to people that I knew. I, you know, lots of college friends, people in sorority, people I knew from high school, (laughs) the, you know, the stereotype. Um, It was very rare that I did like cold messages to people that I didn't know, but it did happen Uh, when I got, you know, when I felt like I needed to reach a certain number of people to reach out to a day, I would cold message someone if I had to. But um, I would reach out with a lot of the time, especially at the beginning, I I like copy and pasted stuff. And then later I just like wrote out things that I wanted to say and things I had learned from others and kind of made my own, uh, I guess, message, my own DM to send to people. And I would do that. Um, but it was still like a copy and paste. So I'd like make one and then I would go in and like change the name. Sometimes I forgot. And that was the most embarrassing thing ever. And I tried to like play it cool, but I how could you, right? You know, people know. And uh, I would go and like edit the message a little bit to like make it more of that person I was talking to and make it a little bit more personalized. And I pretty much just came about it as like, in an honest way, um, 
which sounds ridiculous, but truly like I was making money, you know, I was losing weight. I thought it was this wonderful group of women who cared about me. I thought it was something that it wasn't. And so I was pretty much saying those things like I've, you know, I'm able to make an income. It's been really incredible to be a part of this community. And, and I know that I said it sincerely. So I know other people say it sincerely as well. Um, but it was, but I was so blinded by what I thought it was. And I didn't really use my brain to think things through. Like I said, I was just, um, on the idea of, I'm making extra money. Like it's actually working for me. Like I'm, I'm actually doing the thing, but honestly, I just knew a lot of people. It was the right time and I was at the right place. And, uh, I was able to get people to come in several people, a lot of people, but it was very hard to have them stay. They didn't want to stay. So, uh, or they would like uh, slowly kind of step away because they weren't making the income, you know, a lot of them. Uh, they they liked the products, but they weren't losing weight like I was. You know, they, they were busier than me. I really didn't have a whole lot going on. I had left my job, which I probably would have left anyway. It was not a great experience, but I left and then was like, oh, look, I'm able to do our bond full time. When in reality, like I wasn't making necessarily full time. I was making some, but not full time income. I just really did not enjoy working with my bosses at that job. So that's mostly why I left. Of course, blaming it on Arbon being the reason I was able to not, not true. Um, but that's what you were told to do. You were, you were told to like, you know, uh, Julie left. Julie, t- let them know what Arbon did for you. You know, let them know like what these products have done for you. You've been able to stay home now and like, you know, work from home. And um, it was very sensationalized. And so I was bringing these all these people in, but they weren't being successful. And there was maybe one or two. I think a total of like four people who hit district manager out of the dozens and dozens and dozens that came. And then one person that hit area manager and they all worked hard. Every person that came in that was, that really wanted to work, worked hard, but it wasn't possible. They, they didn't know as many people. They, they weren't coming in at the right time. They weren't coming in at the right place. Like it's this, um, it's like the, I don't know what you call it. It was like the perfect moment for me to come in and and get started. But that doesn't happen very often for many other people. I was just lucky. It's not that I was a better worker or smarter or um, anything like that. It was just like everything worked out for me. I was lucky. And they were in that same space in that same time. And uh, the majority of them didn't profit even though they would make a commission check of a hundred bucks, they spent 300 that month. So mm-hmm. really they're negative of 200. And even as someone who profited, I barely profited. And I made upwards of like 30,000 in one year. Mm-hmm. And I barely profited, which is wild to think about. I mean, could you imagine having a job where you're so overwhelmed and working constantly and acting like you're making all this money, even though 30,000 isn't much, you, you, you come at the, to the end of the year and you go, but I didn't make 30,000. I made more like 
eight. And it it was just yeah wild, you know, as I think back about it. But um I kind of went on a tangent there. <laughs> no, it's good. Um you kind of mentioned that you would bring people in and they would kind of phase off or they would drop. I I know that at the time you were like, this is working for me. You know, it, this is great. Like you had a sincere kind of testimony, I guess, about Arbon. So what did you think was happening to people that were dropping off that were on your team? Like how did you kind of justify or think about that while you were in? Well, for me, when I was in, I was like, they must be doing something wrong. There must be, they must not be doing what they say they're doing. Um, they must not be reaching out and doing their, you know, daily methods for success is, is what people in Arbonne call it. They, they must not be doing that because, because if they were, they would also be making money like me. Right. And, and, you know, my leaders were telling me that they're like, don't worry about her. She's just not doing what she's supposed to be doing. I'm like, okay. I mean, she's a friend, you know, like I worry about my friends if, you know, I feel like something's weird or something's not going on. They were like, no, no, no. She's just not doing it. She's her heart's not in it. Don't waste time on her. I'm like, all right, (laughs) then I won't. I guess she's not doing it. I guess she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. Um, And now I, I know obviously it's, they weren't making money. They were putting in all this effort for next to nothing. Um, The only thing was community. And even then it felt so fake towards the end, you know, kind of having my uh, rose colored glasses taken off towards the end. It felt so um, forced. And I started to actually see things the way, you know, they should be seen. And, and I understood why people were leaving towards the end. I, I got it, but it took me a while. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and see if you can recall any specific situations or anecdotes from your time in Arbonne that stuck out to you as strange or now stick out to you as strange or out of the ordinary, like weird behavioral things that happened. Yeah. Starting off like easy was just like praying during trainings. Uh, Very weird. (laughs) I didn't think it was the time, but very, very weird. Um, I think, and then going to like an extreme towards the end, when I started to see the red flags being invited to like Facebook groups that were about like conspiracy theories and weird religious conspiracies that I did not agree with even then uh, was kind of the exit door. Luckily, (laughs) luckily I didn't fall into that. Um, but I mean, just a lot of faith things that you wouldn't do at your job, a lot of religious things that you wouldn't do. A lot of things that were said, you know, reading scripture and like, um, the prayers, the, um, the really weird idea of mindset. And it was, it was more of like, a way to stop yourself from thinking instead of actually like creating a better mindset. It was more of like, trust this, trust that, um, you know, believe, uh, if you work hard enough for this long, you know, just go harder, go longer. And it, it was just the idea that they're calling yourself, they're calling something you're doing 
mindset when actually it's just like a thought stopping technique um, to stop you in your tracks from really thinking things through and thinking logically. Yeah, that's one of the things I see a lot. Like you mentioned conspiracy theories and how there's this kind of pipeline from from MLMs into QAnon. In some in some MLMs, it feels like it's more prominent than others. Um, where do you think that comes from? Um, like, is it one of the things I see often is kind of this healthy, like cut out bad chemicals or bad stuff from your your products or your diet, and that becomes kind of its like rabbit hole into kind of QAnon groups and stuff. So when it comes to MLM, I see them always before they hit the QAnon. I see them always take a stop stop at the um, healthy, chemical free, um, take metal detox or use, you know, drink lavender essential oil. I always see them doing something like that first, right? They kind of step into a little bit of a conspiracy theory. They start off with it being a little smaller. It gets a little bigger and things start to become easier to believe, I think. And and that's when they kind of step in that QAnon um, conspiracy theory area, which is just super uncomfortable for me. I That's one thing I personally like kind of left was because it was QAnon that the group was focused on. It was those kind of things um, that they almost expected me to agree with. And uh, I, I completely agree with you. I do see people in MLM once they hit that of that like detox, chemical free lifestyle. I see them fall into that QAnon conspiracy um, pretty quickly after. Yeah, it is. It is really wild to me. But it's kind of like that thing of like you're you're having a certain amount of groupthink inside of the MLM, and so the natural conclusion of that is like, okay, then you're going to have be susceptible to groupthink inside of other you know either inside of religion inside of you know these QAnon groups like it's all kind of the same thing being replicated across multiple areas so I always find that fascinating um but I know that you you said that the conspiracy part was one of the things that kind of started turning you away can you describe was there kind of a moment where you kind of the veil was lifted, I guess, or like your rose colored glasses came off. Um, and you were like, I, I don't know if I can stay. Um, can you walk me through kind of that time? Yes. Um, so I don't know if you've heard the save our children kind of idea, um, that kind of takes you into the QAnon conspiracy theory. So I was, I was included in a Facebook of that. I didn't know much about it though. Uh, and this was also during like the presidential election and like every in COVID and everything was wild and crazy. just a mess. Crazy. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. So I was overwhelmed. Uh, and I, you know, my mental health got really bad during then too. So I had taken a step back from Arbonne because I was struggling so much with my mental health. And if I wasn't struggling so much with my mental health and taking a step back, I don't know if I would actually be out. Um, taking the step back and stepping out of that echo chamber, I think is even if it, it was for a couple of months, I, that I, I truly think that's kind of what 
took off my rose colored glasses. I wasn't in those groups every day. I wasn't talking to them every day. I wasn't doing this or that with them. I had taken a break and simply me taking that break helped me, you know, get out of that room that they're all in for, for a while and kind of cleared the air. And I think that that was one, I already forgot your question, but I think that was like the biggest reason that I was able to not fall into that was sadly, I was struggling with a lot of, um, mental health and, uh, in a very serious way. However, because of that, I was able to go to therapy and learn to use my logic and emotional brain equally. And, um, I was able to kind of see what was going on during that. Yeah. So once you kind of decided that you were going to take a step back, that you were going to quit, how did that go down, um, with your upline or any of the leadership? Cause you, at that point you had relationships with people that were in leadership, you know, in the leadership ranks at the company. Yeah. I pretty much just started to not reply back. I was, they already knew that I was struggling with my mental health. So they had already like added my team into their groups and like, we're helping my team already. And, um, at that point, you know, as I left, I was, I didn't make a big grand exit. I just quietly left and they would message me and I would not reply. They would, you know, reach out to me and I, and I would ignore it. And it, you know, after a couple of months, they're like, okay, she's done. You know, she, she doesn't want to do it anymore. Or, or she's like, she's done. She's done working. Apparently, um, she's no use to me at this point, right? I'm not making money, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they just had, took on my team as I was struggling with my mental health. And I was able to just quietly leave, which I was very privileged to be able to do that because a lot of times that is not the way that goes. I pretty much just ghosted everybody. Yeah. Well, I'm glad for you that it wasn't like this whole like blow up sort of situation that it often is where people are like, I don't know why you're quitting or, you know, whatever you were giving up on your dreams kind of situation, um, which happens a lot. So I'm glad that that didn't happen to you, even though it sucks that it took you going through such like a hard time in your life to realize that you needed to, to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're kind of wrapping it up. So is there anything that we didn't touch that you kind of want to make sure that we talk about or have a dialogue about at all? Um, not necessarily other than, you know, I, I guess just a couple statements of like, I truly believe some people are trying to be authentic and they really think what they're doing is helping people because it might be helping them. A lot of time they're, you know, regurgitating what they hear. I think the majority of the time. Um, and so as someone who felt like I was doing it authentically, it's hard for me, um, to watch people who also think they're doing it authentically. It's hard for me to sit here and watch them. Um, but when it, when you get to the top leaders, I think that there's a crossroads that you come to where, you know, um, no matter how much money you're making or whatever, you see enough people fail to know that it's not them not working hard enough. Um, 
that crossroads is kind of where I left. And I do think every leader, and that's why I really cover leaders in the majority of my content is because they came to that crossroads and they chose, you know, they chose to stay, even though they knew what they were saying wasn't right. Um, and so I think that a lot of people come to that decision once they hit a certain rank in the business, depending on, you know, there's always this shift in the company, this, this rank where things change and, and all the leaders experience that no matter what they say. And that's, that's why I think leaders need to be held more accountable and um, why I have so much empathy for those that aren't. And I think a lot of times I have people ask me on, on social media, like, you know, why, you know, why are these people joining? It's so ridiculous. Like, why are they, you know, why are they doing this? Why are blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, if you understood the manipulation, the vulnerability that they're experiencing and how easy it is for someone to tap into that, who knows how to, or, or who has been taught to and how easy it is to pull them in, you would, and you've experienced it. You would, you would be thinking twice before saying that it's so easy, especially when you are going through a difficult time to get into something like this. And in my opinion, they're commercial cults. So it's easy to be pulled into that. And I guess just for people to know that, you know, have empathy, but use logic at the same time. Um, and for me, I try to make sure I do that. Even when covering leaders, <laughs> I try to do that, but overall there's a crossroads. And if, if they chose to stay, then they made that decision. Yeah. That's what I find super fascinating. I, I talk about this in my, in the series a lot is like, people always kind of look at people that get pulled into MLMs as being like dumb or, you know, like how could they be tricked into this thing? It's so obvious, but we all bring our whole experience to whatever situation we're in. Like there were times in my life where I was broke and single and like had no job and like was directionless, whereas something like this could have been very persuasive for me. And so everybody kind of has those like milestones in their life. If you're like a single mom or you're, you're a second generation immigrant, like these things are persuasive for that reason, because everybody's got kind of that, like, oh, like, it would be nice if I could just make a little extra money. Like, and those things are very, very powerful, persuasive things. And these companies know that. Um, and like being outside of an MLM and looking at it requires you to understand that you, they're both victims and perpetrators of manipulation. And that's a really hard thing to like reconcile in your mind. I'm sure if you're coming out of that and being like, I was a victim, but I was also a perpetrator of that thing. It's hard. It is so hard to reconcile with. And it took me a very long time. I mean, I think at this time we're in 2020 at the end of 2023 and I left at the, at the end of 2020 was when I was, you know, struggling mentally. And that's kind of when I started to step out mostly at the beginning of 2021, when I started my TikTok. uh, that's kind of when I really publicly made people know, made it known. Um, and Ever since, you know, it took me a couple years. I mean, even as I started YouTube to try to wrestle with the idea of cognitive dissonance, religion, empathy, and anger, honestly, I think was also a huge part of it, as well as just like me feeling like I betrayed several people 
uh, many people in my downline, you know, I just feel like I betrayed them. And I tried to, what I just, I tried to reconcile with that. Um, and, and I have at this point, but it was very, very hard. Uh, it was confusing because I thought I was doing the right thing, but also overwhelming because, you know, at that point, you know, once I really stepped out and started talking about it, I knew it wasn't. And I didn't know if I was a bad person or not. I didn't know how to reconcile with it. But, you know, at this point I have, and I'm, I'm grateful for the experience. And I, I just do what I can now to advocate for people to not experience what I did and what those around me did. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really healthy kind of thing. Cause it, it would be so easy to just for somebody in your position to be like, no, I'm just never going to talk about that again, but you're using, you know, you're building a platform and you're, you're doing what you can to prevent it. And I think that that's really admirable and, um, really cool. So, um, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, you mentioned that you started talking on TikTok and started making content. Did anybody from Arbon that you had a relationship with ever kind of reach out to you when they saw stuff like that? Or did they not really engage with you at all? Yeah, I had, I think, two people um, reach out and ask me just straight up. One of them commented on a TikTok and I replied to them in a TikTok. And then another one DM'd you on Instagram, more of like a, hey, I'm just wondering, you know, why you stopped. And I was very honest with them. And they still did Arbonne even after I told them my, you know, the honest perspective um, and, and they were mostly, you know, respectful to me, which was kind, they didn't need to be, but they were, which I'm grateful for. But, um, yeah, just a couple people. And then I feel like a lot of them just watched my TikTok, my YouTube and kind of got the picture there. Like, I, I feel like I, I went pretty in depth and explained it pretty well through that. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you have these numbers on hand, but do you know over the time in Arbonne, like how much money you spent? I know you said you made profit around eight grand, I think is what you said. Um, but do you remember like how much you were spending either per month or like any kind of like number figure that you can remember? I was probably spending at least $300 a month with like there being like 700 to $1,000 a couple months of the year. So several thousand dollars a year I was spending. And I think I was in it for a year and a half or so. Um, so while I, you know, total, I got like 30 K around there, kind of around there. Um, I didn't even profit 10. I don't think like if I had to guess, um, thinking of like all the gifts I brought, but that's just Arbonne product that I mentioned several hundred thousand a a year that didn't include like any gifts I bought for people or anything else outside of it. Um, which was a lot of stuff. Does that include like any events that you went to or is that just, that's just product? Um, that does not include events I went to and, and mine were all pretty much online. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were still a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. And I think I went to a few different ones. So Yeah. You never went to any events in person? No, I because I when I became a district manager, it was 
after, well, I pretty much started right when the last in-person event was before COVID and then COVID happened and I was just had started in March. And so it happened in like the end of March, you know, beginning of April and the Arbonne convention happened at the beginning of March, something like that. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't able to do that. And the next year was 2020. And so then, you know, but I did earn a trip to the Riviera Maya, um, with like an additional bonus on that trip, but that got canceled. So they just gave it to us and taxed us the cost, cost of it. Um, yeah, yeah. The, I paid over $5,000 in taxes. So there's also that, that I didn't add into. Yeah. It's a lot. It was wild. It was wild. There's nothing worse than than getting your your tax return and being like you owe money to the government. Oh God, <laughs> it's the worst. That was so bad too because I just had no idea. You know, at that point, I'd only been a student worker. I didn't really understand how the whole tax situation worked with an MLM. I didn't know. You know, they had said like, oh yeah, you know, you pay taxes, blah blah blah, but they don't ever give you information on that. And I understand the idea of going and figuring it out yourself, but it's not that easy when you don't know exactly what to look for. It's not that easy, you know, when you're, I don't know, expecting, and I don't even know what I expected, but you know, any job I had, they just took taxes out. That was pretty simple. But um, yeah, that was a rude awakening. That $5,000 we owed back was a rude awakening. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it, I bet it was. So where can people find you? Um, Where can they engage with your content? Um, Anything like that you want to say while we wrap up? Sure. So uh, my favorite platform is YouTube. I really enjoy being on there. Um, I have created a YouTube channel of almost 20,000 subscribers. and I'm so grateful for that. I am Julie Joe on YouTube. So J-U-L-I-E-J-O. And then on TikTok and Instagram, I am walkin underscore on underscore Lexapro. Uh, because I also am a big mental health advocate and as someone who takes medication for my mental health, um, I know that there's a lot of stigma. So I talk a lot on TikTok and Instagram about both mental health and um, scams and multi-level marketing companies. So you can find me there. Don't you see that man is lying to you? I want to thank Julie for her time and for being willing to talk at length with me about all things Arbonne. Go check out her YouTube channel. She's doing great work over there. If anything in this episode has affected you, or if you have your own story to share, reach out at blow.studio at gmail.com. That's blow, B-L-O-W-W.studio at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at opcostpod. That's O-P-P-C-O-S-T-P-O-D. Thanks for listening.